Well, this morning I'd like to begin um, with some explanation. I think oftentimes uh, we assume uh, that um, people know what we know, understand what we understand, and there's a lo- lot that goes without saying sometimes uh, in church gatherings. Um, the reality is, is not all of us come from the same church traditions or the same church background. Some of us don't come from any sort of church background. And so imagine, you know, somebody, <clears throat> you know, coming into this gathering and, and they're seeing, you know, some of the ceremony uh, that, they, that they experience in the gathering like this and they don't understand it. Um, they don't understand the reasons behind it and sort of they're left scratching their heads a little bit. So I want to take a minute and I want to explain um, two of the type of, of ceremony that you experience um, in a gathering on, on Sunday morning. Um, and the first is this act of communion. Communion. So um, ceremony is really important experience for, for being human. Humans um, uh, everywhere experience ceremony for, for specific reasons. Um, ceremony really comes down to uh, honoring and remembering. Honoring and remembering. So um, say, for instance, you, you've been in the military. And you understand uh, some, some of the, the, the ceremony that's involved in the military. If you're, you're, you're in uniform and you're, you're saluting the flag, or maybe you've been to a military funeral and you see how the flag is treated, or uh, maybe you've been to a memorial. Maybe you haven't been in the military, but you've been to a memorial, or you've seen um, you know, videos about what takes place at the changing of guard at, at the tomb of the, the, the unknown soldier. Like, the, without saying a word, this ceremony speaks volumes and it honors and it remembers. Um, Ceremony is a powerful way of proclaiming something that you believe to be true. And so uh, within uh, the the church, we experience ceremony, and one of those is through this act of communion. Um, And so if you you haven't got the elements yet, go ahead and take a moment and and find them. There's a couple buckets in uh, the uh, aisle way there. And... uh, and we're going to begin this morning, and we're going to talk about uh, communion. And I, I just want to, to just clarify for you, maybe you've never experienced this before, um, what this is all about. What does this mean for us as Christians? Um, and so if, if you are here this morning and you say, I'm not a Christian, I'm sort of checking this out, or um, I have been brought here with a, a friend or a loved one, um, as far as what Christians believe about sin or about Jesus being God or any of that stuff, I'm not there. Um, and so you would say, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I want you to know, we're really glad that you're here. Um, and, and I would ask, sit back and observe this ceremony, so to speak. Observe this and, and watch and see what happens. Um, I don't want you to be a hypocrite. Right? I don't want you to, to, to proclaim to believe something by partaking in this that you don't actually believe, okay? And not everybody's going to be partaking of communion. Not everybody does that uh, at the same time, and so nobody's going to notice if you're not taking. But, um, but I want you to, to hold this in your hand, and this is really something quite simple, isn't it? It's just a bunch of plastic and foil, and there's a little wafer of bread in there, and there's some juice in there, and um, you, you might have wine in yours. It depends on how old the juice is. Um, but it's pretty simple, right? It, it's, there's, there's, there's not much to it, and yet there's two elements in here that are, are very powerful symbols for us as Christians. Uh, communion is, 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 is something that reminds us of the climax of God's story. Now, if you realize this or not, but you are living God's story. You're not living your own story. You're living God's story. And at the climax of God's story, there is the cross of Jesus, there's this, this moment in time where God himself, he takes on flesh and he comes to us. The God of the universe comes to us. 
And he lives a life like we live, and he faces all the trials and all the pains and all the struggles that we face as a human, and yet he does it differently. He, he doesn't choose the alternative path. He doesn't choose the disobedient path. He doesn't choose the faithless path. He, he stays true in faithfulness to who his father is, and he lives this completely righteous life, fully human. And so he can take this fully human life, and it can be a substitute for us. But he's also fully God. And so that substitute, it can substitute for every man, woman, and child who's ever lived. This substitute to go to the cross and make this exchange that he gives us his righteousness, and, and he takes on our sin. This is the climax of the story, of God's story. And he dies in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. And that's what we celebrate when we, when we take this. Ceremony is about reaching into the past and grabbing on something that happened and you bring it into your present and you allow it to change your future. That's what this is about. And so I'd ask you to, to, to peel off that first layer there where you find the, the bread. Very simple thing. And yet, the night before Jesus died, he took something as simple as bread and he ripped it apart and he handed it out to his disciples and he said, this is a symbol of my presence, my body given for you, my presence. I mean, the God of the universe taking on flesh and giving himself to humanity up to the point of death. And he dies and he is raised and he sits uh, right now at the right hand of the Father, but he sent his spirit to live in us, the very presence of God with us. This is what we celebrate. And so if you're here this morning and you are in Christ and he is in you, then honor and remember the climax of the story and take and eat. That same night he took a cup filled with wine, passed it around to his disciples, and he said, this is a symbol of my blood which is going to be poured out for you. My blood which is going to cover your sin. And by covering your sin, you get to have a relationship with God. You get to be reconnected to him because for what I'm about to do for you, this is a new covenant that you get to have with him. And so when we partake of this simple symbol, we are reaching into the past and we're taking the cross and we're putting it in our present. We're allowing it to change us and to change our future. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then take and drink all of it. It's important that we don't take for granted what people know or what they don't know. The second thing that you will experience often when you come into a gathering is that we stand for the reading of Scripture. Now, this is not something that the Bible uh, commands us to do. This is a tradition that we have elected, have adopted uh, to, to do for, for a reason, and here's why. Um, we believe that God's Word is powerful. We believe the fact that, that the creator of the universe decided to communicate to us that he wanted us to know him, that he went to great lengths to form what we call the Bible and to put this in our hands. And that these words, they're not the words of men. They're not the words of women. These are the very words of God. And because of that, they have authority and they have power and they give life. And so when they are read, we, we acknowledge outwardly 
What we want our hearts to take up a posture inwardly of submission to his word, of coming under it and willingly allow it to shape who we are. That's why we stand for the reading of God's word. And so I'll ask you to do that with me now. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 23. I'm not going to go in in order here. This is a, a passage of scripture that's known as the seven woes, and you'll see why here in a moment. It'll be up on the screen, beginning in verse one. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in those days, the days of our fathers, we would not have partaken with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets." And then finally in verse 37, Jesus says this, So Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen, gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Heavenly Father, we come together this morning to ask for you to speak and for you to proclaim your grace and mercy to us as we need it. But I pray that we would not be afraid to look at the difference between what we say we are and what we actually are. And I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, enable us to change. Call us and bring us and make us the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a sign outside uh, of our building, which says New Community Church, a family of house churches. Over the last couple of years, we have seen um, that the house church environment be a very important aspect of who we are. That everything that's happened over the last two years, we've seen our house churches provide structure and care and relationship. And I do not think that we would be where we are today without that that the house church model that, that we've adopted. There's lots of house churches that are, that are growing and thriving and, and, and they're, they're being obedient to God and, and, and what they're called to be. But I, wanna, I want you to, to think about that, those words for a moment with me. A family of house churches. Family of house churches. Does that encapsulate what you've experienced? Is that a good descriptor of what we are as a church? A family of house churches. If you think about it, it sort of implies a couple things. It implies, one, that everybody... 
uh, that all of you are in a house church. Um, it implies that a house church is maybe a smaller version of the whole thing, that you, you find the same DNA um, in the house church that you find in the larger body. Uh, it implies that our house churches function with one another in a familial way, that our, our house churches interact with one another as, as a family would interact with one another. In, in, in your experience so far, for maybe those of you who are new, or for, for everybody, does these words, a family of house churches, does that encapsulate accurately what you've discovered about us? If you would say no, would you be so bold as to, to raise your hand? Would you say that those words, a family of house churches, isn't very accurate of us? I agree. And that stings. As one of the people that's responsible for the wording on those signs, it stings. And I agree. You see, there's, there's a difference between what we say we are and what we actually are. There's a difference. What does the world call that? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. This morning, uh, I want to just sort of lay out a foundation for you where we're going. We're going to take a break, uh, a break from the gospel according to Luke for about eight weeks. And we're going to be dealing with, with our house churches. We're going to ask questions regarding um, our, our house churches. And this is not intended uh, to, but any way, um, you know, bash our house churches, but it's, it's meant to be instructive and encouraging and, um, and be beneficial for us as a church and our house churches. But we're going to be asking these questions. Who is, and, and what is a house church? What is it supposed to be about? What does it do? How is it led? And all sorts of things like that. We're going to be looking at these questions over the next eight weeks. So for all of you, as, as a church, you're, you're going to come on a Sunday morning and you'll, you'll, you'll listen to a sermon um, in, in, in talking about these things. But for our house church leaders and for those aspiring to house church leadership, um, they're going to take a deeper dive. Um, they're going to be going through what's called a saturate field guide. Um, it's a tool, simply a tool that we're using that, that pulls out biblical principles to help us understand what a church is supposed to be about. And uh, these leaders on their own, almost on a daily basis, are going to dive in to this. Um, then following the gathering and the sermon, our house church leaders are going to gather in huddles uh, with other leadership and uh, with an elder and uh, go even deeper into, into, into these questions. Um, the purpose of all of this is uh, for us to, to be unified in our understanding about what God has called us to do and be. Uh, as I've said before, you, you could probably ask 10 different people who are in a house church, what is a house church? And you'd probably get 10 different answers. And so we're going to spend the next eight weeks doing that. This morning, um, we are going to, uh, to, to look at the question, who and what is the church? As a whole, who and what is uh, the church? And, and just to sort of mine that out a little bit, we're going to see three things. The first is that the church is the people of God. The church is the people of God who are saved by the works of Jesus for his purpose in the world. We're going to spend some time breaking that down. But then after we do that, we're going to look at that question. After we define what a church is, we're going to see that, that there's a picture of what the church is, and then there's, there's what we really are. And they're not the same thing. So how do we get from here to there? What do we do if we see that we're hypocrites? Uh, so let's dive in. As far as who and what is the church, the first part of that is that the church is the people of God. When you look at 1 Peter 2.9 with me, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is, is Peter's definition of, of, of the church, the, the people of God, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And these words are a reflection, they're an echo of actually what we find in the New Testament or the Old Testament. You go back to the, the, the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1:18, we see the first mandate, the first divine mandate that God gives to his image bearers. Adam and Eve, they were created in the image of God. That means that they're not exact replicas of what God is. Instead, they're like mirrors. Human beings were meant to be mirrors, that, that God's glory would shine and that, that a human being would be like a mirror and it would reflect God's glory to the rest of creation. They were meant to be this, this, this beautiful picture of who God is and what God is like. Well, our first parents, they were instructed by God to, to multiply. In, in Genesis 1.18, it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's desire is for his glory to shine all over the earth because his, reflect, his people reflect accurately who he is. The first mandate of scripture. Well, um, our first parents, they didn't reflect who God was accurately. They reflected themselves. They wanted God's glory. They wanted to elevate themselves. They didn't want to be in submission under, under him. And so they reached out their hands and they disobeyed God and they took fruit. He told them not to eat and they ate it. And I want us to understand what, what, that, what that means. It, it, imagine a light bulb in, in a lamp and, and it's plugged into to a wall outlet. And because it's plugged into the wall outlet, that lamp can shine. Right? It gives light, it gives warmth to a room, it shines. You unplug it from the wall and what happens? The light bulb is dead. The light bulb has no power on its own to shine. Human being, you only have life and light and love when you are connected to your creator. You only have life and light and love when you are connected to the one who made you. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, unplugged from God, death and sin was the result for all of us. They failed at this divine mandate. So God goes about his plan of redemption, and it is to call this man Abram. And in Genesis uh, chapter 12, 1 through 3, we did read this, excuse me. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see this divine mandate still at work, that God is going to raise up a nation of people that his glory would shine through so that all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this nation. And so Abraham has a son, and his son has two sons, and those two sons have uh, <coughs> multiplying. One of them has 12 sons, and, and all of a sudden, 400 years later, we have this new nation, the nation of Israel. Enslaved in Egypt, God raises up a deliverer, rescues them, and is taking them to a promised land. And on the way, he says to them this, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people of God, this is what their definition is. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what uh, Peter is echoing in 1 Peter 2, 9. But just like Adam and Eve, Israel failed. They failed. They rejected God's reign and rule over them. They rebelled against him. They failed. 
And as a result, uh, other nations came in and took them off into slavery until at the end of the Old Testament, what we see is a, a, a very small group of a, a remnant of a people that is left. And then there's 400 years of silence. God's people failed at being his people. And then the, the opening of the New Testament dawns with a new Savior, a new Moses, a new, new Abram, a new person sent to deliver God's people. And this time it's actually the Son of God who takes on flesh. And as we talked about when we partook of communion together, the Son of God comes and he lives this righteous life. And then at the cross, he offers it in order to redeem us. Through the cross of Jesus, we are made God's people. That is the church. We are God's people. The second part of this is that we are God's people saved by the work of Jesus. We are not saved by what we have done. We don't become God's people because of, of some standards that we reach, by some morality we accomplish. That there is no standard that, that we can live up to that would make us God's people. Jesus does the work for us. Look at uh, 1 Peter 2.10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This time, God's people, it isn't a nation. It's not people who share a common tongue or a common language. It's not people who share a, a common skin color or, or a, a common place of birth. Instead, God's people are now made up of people from all over the world who come to Jesus at the cross and they accept what Jesus has done for them. They're defined by what Jesus has done for them. We are God's people saved by the works of Jesus. The final part of this is that we are saved by the work of Jesus for his purpose in the world. Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christian, you need to understand that you are not saved just to something. You haven't just been saved to a relationship with God. You haven't just been saved to a relationship with one another. You haven't just been saved to an eternal existence of, of life with him. You have been saved for his purposes in the world. It means that there is a job for us to do. A job which God designed us for. A job which goes all the way back to the first divine mandate of, of multiplication and, and, and spreading throughout the world. That God's glory is supposed to go forth from us all over the world. The church is God's people saved by the work of Jesus for his purposes in the world. Is that what we are? Is that what we are? See, the reality is, is most people don't define church that way. Most people define church as a building. You drive past it and you say, that's a church. We define it as a building. We, de we define it as a group of, of, of religious leaders, pastors, putting on programs at a church building. It's a view of church that is, that is rooted in, a, in the ground and is immovable. It has an address and it doesn't go anywhere. That's the version of church that so many people hold to. And when it comes to things like discipleship, you know, the reality is like, if, if we were to look at, um, at other websites of churches in the area, we're looking at their doctrine, their theology. 
We look at what do they believe about God? What do they believe about what he's done? We, we line that up against our doctrine and our theology. What you'd see is a lot of similarities. You see, we agree about a lot of things, at least on paper. But you see, it's not what matters on paper. It's about how we actually live. People have this idea of discipleship that it's like, I, I've been called to make disciples, so I'm going to stay in my house, and when my neighbor wants Jesus, they can walk across the street and they can ask me about him. And they can knock on my door and say, hey, can you tell me about Jesus? I saw the bumper sticker on your car. Wonderful. Let me take you to the church and I'll introduce you to the professional Christian and he'll proclaim the gospel to you. And then if you believe it, then you're saved and now you're a Christian. That is not what the Bible tells us about discipleship. We have this, this God who is a missionary God who is, who's come to us and he says, you're to go too. It's not about our neighbor coming across the street to us. It's about us going across the street to our neighbor. We've been sent This is not a church. You're the church. I'm the church. A people of God saved by the work of Jesus for his purpose in the world. That's what a church is. Is that what we are? Is that what we are? Let's go back to what Jesus said in Matthew 23. He's pointing to these Pharisees, religious leaders. And he says, woe to you. And he calls them hypocrites. One of the things he says to them is that he likens them to gatekeepers. Like they're, they're, they're standing at the, the entrance to the kingdom of God and they are the ones who did to determine who comes in and who goes out. They're the gatekeepers. And they have a, a list of standards that they measure people by. And what Jesus points out is that you think you're this gatekeeper, but the reality is you've never actually been inside. You think that you can block the way to God and you don't even know who God is. There's a difference between what you say you are and what you actually are. He says this too. He says um, that you're disciple makers, but you're disciple makers of Satan. He talks about this word proselyte. You'll go to great distances to make a proselyte, a disciple, a follower. But you're not making followers of God, you're making followers of Satan. You make people twice the sons of hell that you are. That's what he says. Because you have these standards, it's, it's all built on your pride. That's Satan, that's not God. The third thing he says is that, that your blind guides, your blind guides, it's like, uh, imagine a ship captain who's actually steering the ship's toward the iceberg. That's what he's saying about them. That, that you think that you're in charge and you're, you're, you're steering the spiritual ship, but you're, you're shipwrecking it. He says this, that you're generous with every speck, but you're selfish with what really matters. The Jewish people, uh, the Israelites, were commanded by God in the Old Testament that, that God would, would provide for them, and what God provided for them, they would give a tenth of it back to him. It's called a tithe. And so here's this group of religious people who um, they, they also believed that, 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 uh, that financial wealth, material prosperity, was a reflection of your righteousness, right? If you were a righteous person, then God blessed you financially. So um, your wealth was actually a symbol to the people around you that you're a very righteous person. In order to keep this sort of thing up, they, they decided to, to give of every material possession that they had, including their spice rack. 
to go to their spice rack and say, I'm gonna take a tenth of, of this cumin, I'm gonna give it back to God. It was just this way of, of, of arrogantly uh, showing, I'm wealthy because I'm good. And what, what Jesus says is like, you don't actually have what matters. You're actually spiritually bankrupt. God doesn't care about your spice rack. He cares about justice and mercy and faithfulness, and you have none of that. It talks about how on the outside they're clean and they're sanitized, but on the inside they're full of putrid rotting, stink, whitewashed. There's a, there's a, a difference between what you present to the world and what's really happening inside of your hearts. It says that they're different than their forefathers. They believe that if they had been around during the time of the prophets, that they would have listened to the prophets when they came. They would not have killed the prophets. And here's what Jesus is, is pointing out to them. Like, you have me standing right in front of you, and you don't see me. Jesus, over and over them, again, calls them hypocrites. And we love Jesus for that, don't we? Don't you love it? When we, you get this picture of Jesus and he's pointing at the religious conservative hypocrite and he's saying, you're a hypocrite. Don't we love that? You ever been hurt in church? You ever been hurt by, by, by somebody in, in, in the church who uh, looked down on you? They had all these artificial standards for what it means to be a good Christian. You couldn't live up. And so they had all these rules for who's in and who's out. You ever been hurt by people in church? And we hear Jesus saying, you hypocrites. And we're like, yeah, get them. See, the temptation for all of us is to, to look around and be like, man, I hope so-and-so is here to hear this. Our temptation is like, yeah, the church I just came from, I wish they would hear this. They should study Matthew 23. We're thinking about the other people that we would point to and we would call hypocrites. But you know what? It's not just the people on the religious right that are hypocrites. There's people on the liberal left that are also hypocrites. My favorite Thoreau, it comes from a guy named H.D. Uh, Thoreau. My favorite quote comes from H.D. My favorite Thoreau comes. And he wrote this. He said, We are sometimes made aware of a kindness long past and realize that there have been times when our friends' thoughts of us were so pure and lofty a character that they passed over us like the winds of heaven unnoticed. When they treated us not as what we were, but as what we aspired to be. Treated us not as what we were, but what we aspired to be. I love that quote because it's such a beautiful picture of grace. To say on the one hand, this is what I am, and this is what I want to be, and there are people in my life who love me enough to treat me like this instead of like this. From, from a certain perspective, Thoreau understood grace. The problem is, is uh, Thoreau was not a Christian. He's a transcendentalist. He, he, he believed basically pantheism, the, the idea that God is in that rock or in that tree, it's in you, it's in me. The, the, the bottom line is that, that he didn't live his life in submission to anything higher. And, and when you look at his writings, particularly uh, about politics, he drew a lot of lines in the sand and had a lot of standards which people weren't able to live up to, including himself. See, we find hypocrisy on the far right and we find hypocrisy on the far left and at every spot in between because we are all hypocrites. We are all hypocrites. There is this idea that we think that we are, and then there's the reality of what we actually are, and they don't line up. We are hypocrites, and all of us have blind spots. We, you might be here this morning and think, oh, I, I know all the ways in which I fail. Trust me, ask somebody who really knows you. 
do you have any blind spots? And if they tell you, no, you're good, they're lying. And they're lying probably because they're worried that you're going to unleash heck on them if you tell them the truth. We're all hypocrites. And so if every person's a hypocrite, and the church is not a place, it's a people who are hypocrites, what does that make us? I'm an elder, what does that make me? Chief of hypocrites. We, we have to be confronted with this fact that there's this ideal that, that God is calling us to, and we're not there. So what do we do with that? How do we get from here to there? And we really have two choices in front of us. The first is denial. We can deny it. And here's what denial looks like. If we're going to be a people who, who, who choose to deny that there's a difference between what we are and what we want to be, here's what it'll look like. Uh, here, here's, here's four things about what it looks like to deny. Here's the first one. Smiling faces all the time. Smiling faces all the time. Any of you, you know, you get up this morning and you're getting the kids out, to, out the door and, and you're frustrated and maybe there's some yelling in the car and you get into the parking lot and you're all the way up and then you hit the glass doors and there's this change that happens. And all of a sudden your family is just all right. You love each other perfectly. It's great. We're smiley, shiny, happy people all the time. This is what we're like all the time, not just when we show up at a place like this. And we put on this facade, like the Pharisees who were whitewashed tombs, and inside there's a lot of rotting stuff going on. But when we meet another person, we encounter another Christian, we feel this need to, to put on the makeup, to put on the mask, to pretend to be something that we're not, to be different. And if there is a problem, it's not with us, it's with something else. Here's what James says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If we don't experience a community that mourns over sin, if we don't experience relationships with other people where we come together and we see this is what I am and that's what I'm supposed to be and I'm failing and I'm failing because of my sin and if we don't grieve over that the way that God does then there's a problem. Second thing we'll do. It'll look like generous criticism. People who are generous with criticism. Jesus writes this in Luke 4. Or Jesus says this. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There are some of us who are really good at ignoring this plank in our eye, but we can spot a speck in somebody else's eye 100 yards away. There are some Christians that actually believe, I think, that criticism is a spiritual gift. Galatians 5, Paul talks about what it looks like for a person who has the Spirit of God and, and living in them. And it looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And some people think they hear criticism in there. That they've been appointed by God to come to you and find fault with everything that you've done. 
They're generous with criticism. Now, we need people to tell us when things are wrong. We do. A few weeks ago, got done with preaching the second message, and, uh, and I was on my way out, out there, and between here and the foyer, I spoke to three different people. And it wasn't just a, hey, hi, how you doing, uh, going by, but it was at least a minute or two, somewhat of a conversation where we made eye contact with each other and we dialogued a little bit. Three people. I get out to the foyer and my friend Steve says to me, you got a booger hanging out of your nose. <laughs> Three people looked at me in the face and said nothing. <laughs> like we need people to point out the boogers on our face. We need people to point out the spiritual boogers that are going on in our life. Like we do need some criticism. But the question is, is, is are you as generous with grace as you are with your criticism? The third thing to see here is it would look like uncharitable reception. You know, regardless of why they're criticizing you, that's between them and God. But if you hear a critique, it's between you and God how you respond to what they say, because it might be true. Can you hear a rebuke? Can you hear a rebuff? Proverbs 15 Verse 31, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. We, we need to tell the truth in love to one another, and we need to receive that. We need to hear that. If we don't hear that, like, like what he says there is, a person who ignores instruction despises himself. See, that's, that's denial. That's, that's saying there's a difference between what I am and, 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 and what I need to be, and somebody points that out. Like, what if I said to my friend Steve, how dare you point out the booger on my face? Who do you think you are? And the reality is, that's how a lot of us respond. We're defensive. Last thing to point out, there's certainly a lot, a lot of things you could add to this list. It's not exhaustive, but it would look like never trying. To deny, to, to, to look at the fact that this is what we are, but that's what we've been called to be. That One of the things we could do in, in denying that is we, we could just never try. We could, all of us, after this gathering is over, we could walk out to that sign and we could tear that thing down. We could put up a new sign. It says 990 West Springfield Pike, and that would be the truth. We could live up to that. That's the address. That would be the truth. But, but for us to put out there the, the, that we are a family of house churches, we, we could deny that by, by never trying. And you see, people who, who sit on the sidelines can find it really easy to find fault with those who are in the game. We could never try. But here's the reality is that, that the definition of church that we were a people of God saved by the works of Jesus, it doesn't stop there. It continues for his purposes in the world. That's why our house churches exist, to equip this body to go into the communities in which we live and reflect the glory of God so that our neighbor, neighbors might know. That's why it's there. And we could say we're, we're not living up to that. That's not what we are, so let's just stop because we look like a bunch of hypocrites. Let's just not try. That's just not an option. 
There's another response that we can have. We could change. We could change because we have the Spirit of God living within us. We could change because the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is living in us. We could change. We can become the people that God is calling us to be. And that change happens when we accept the grace that's afforded to us. You see, if we're going to adopt this, if, if we are going to change, here's what, here's what it's going to look like. Here's at least four things, and they all have to do with grace. And here's the first one. Mourning over sin means rejoicing in grace. When James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, he then says, and he will exalt you. The beautiful thing about mourning over your sin is, is knowing the grace of God that has been afforded to you because of Jesus. And that's worth rejoicing about, rejoicing over the grace that's given to us. Here's the second thing. That if we're going to choose the path of change by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be like humble givers of grace. We'll be humble givers of grace. That, that let's just pretend like there's a reservoir of grace that exists that's completely bottomless. And let's pretend like we can just lavish that on other people. That we could just dump people in that grace. Let's pretend like that, oh wait, it does exist. That we were generous with grace. Not generous with criticism, but generous with grace. Third thing, that we be humble in receiving grace. You know, for, for as many of us, it's hard to give grace. For many of us, it's just as hard to receive grace. And in our pride, we would rather beat ourselves up. We would rather... Uh, look down on ourselves or but 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 it's just it's a different form of pride that if we could receive the grace that's been afforded to us i'll say this for the hypocrite who who can't give grace it's because they haven't received grace it's because they haven't received grace and so for, for those people in your life if you can lavish grace on them and they can experience that that will be the thing that could that could break their icy hearts open Lastly, we can be bold in living out grace. We can be bold in living out. Uh, the, the reality is, is when you, when you see what, you're, there's, there's what you want to be, and then there's what you are, and you see the difference between the two, one of two things can happen. The first thing that can happen is, is you'll just despair. I can't live up to it. It's impossible. The standard's too high. I can't do it. It can lead you to despair. Or... It could lead you to pride. And you think that you can live up to it. And if you just uh, start doing this discipline, or if you just start doing that, you just do whatever, like you can live up. It's either despair or pride. But you know what? It's incredibly freeing when you can just simply throw out your arms and say, I can't. Well, we could just simply say, I'm a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite, but I'm a hypocrite that's been saved by grace. That I can't do it. But there's this, this never-ending grace that surrounds me and that leads me and that encourages me. See, uh, we can have a sign like that out in front of our building that we don't live up to as long as we, by the grace of God, are moving towards it. This is sanctification. That, that, that at the cross of Jesus, you are made righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. 
Legally, you're righteous. That's what God sees when he looks at you. But you and I both know you're not righteous yet. And there's this ongoing process that takes place in your heart to change you into that. But it takes a long time. And just like an individual needs to be sanctified, so a church needs to be sanctified. But we can live out of this boldness and this power. We don't have to tear down the sign. Instead, we could just say, I am. I am a hypocrite. But I am swimming in the grace of God. I want to close with this, going back to Matthew 23. In verse 37, Jesus said this, So Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent into it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? These are the words of God speaking to a faithless, rebellious people saying, I wanted to gather you. wanted to reach out. I wanted to pull you close. It doesn't matter that you failed. I wanted to pull you in. You see, the church is not Israel. Israel failed. Big F failed. The church will never big F fail. The work's already been accomplished by Jesus. The victory's already been won by him. But we we will fail in small ways. But even when we we fail, we have this Savior who looks at us and says, it doesn't matter. I want you to come. I want to gather you together. I want you to see my grace. You see, it is grace that changes us. It's grace that changes us. It is grace that will allow us to move from what we are to what God has called us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how great your love is for us that you would demonstrate so much mercy and kindness to us, that you would send your son to live and die and rise for us. Thank you for purpose. Thank you for allowing us to take part in your redemptive work in the world. Thank you that we don't get to be just bystanders, but we get included. I pray, Father, that we will be a church that is bold in grace, is generous in both the giving and the receiving of grace, and that we would praise and proclaim grace everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen.